invite you to take out your uh, Bibles and turn uh, once again to the book of First Samuel. I was uh, hopefully I was going to finish up First Samuel 15 and finish up with our study on um, on in First Samuel for a while. We were going to leave it aside, and then I got to studying this passage, and it's a long passage, uh, and there's just too much in here. And so we're going to deal today. We're, we're going to take three more weeks, including today. Uh, this week we're going to look at the God who has enemies. Next week we're going to look at the God who repents. And then uh, finally we're going to look at the God who loves his people. So uh, this week the God who has enemies. Well, in every family you have that one member that's just a little off. You have that one family member that you'd prefer not to meet in public or for, for someone to not bring them up. You have that one family member that when everybody gets together, you, you hope they don't show up. All of you have that person in your family. And if you can't think of anyone right now, you're that person, okay? <laughs> we all have it. Um, that's the way families work. Uh, today in this passage, uh, let me by analogy show you that this is the unwanted family member of the Bible. This passage, 1 Samuel 15, 1-9, is the one that we get very uncomfortable with. This passage is the one that atheists love to bring up and throw in our faces. Because it deals with something that is very, very hard. Uh, I wanted to take just a little bit of time this morning and talk about this passage. Because how we understand this passage, how we treat this passage, reveals a lot about who we are as Christians and reveals our hearts to us and to everyone else. Because if we only submit to God and His Word when it's comfortable for us, then we're not really submitting to God and His Word. We're submitting to our comfort. We've made our comfort. We've made the things that we like our God instead of truly God as He is. We shouldn't merely submit to God when it's easy, but maybe especially... When it's really, really hard. And make no, no mistake, this is a hard passage. So, I want to uh, read this for us. This is 1 Samuel 15, 1 through 9. And then we're going to ask for God's help to understand this passage. Um, let me read this for you. Hear God's good and kind word to you today. And Samuel said to Saul, The Lord sent me to anoint you king over his people Israel. Now therefore listen to the words of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I have noted what Amalek did to Israel in opposing them on the way when they came up out of Egypt. Now go and strike Amalek and devote to destruction all that they have. Do not spare them, but kill both man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. So Saul summoned the people and numbered them in Telaim, 200,000 men on foot and 10,000 men of Judah. And Saul came to the city of Amalek and lay, it, lay in wait in the valley. Then Saul said to the Kenites, Go, depart, go down from among the Amalekites, lest I destroy you with them. For you showed kindness to all the people of Israel when they came up out of Egypt. So the Kenites departed from among the Amalekites. And Saul defeated the Amalekites from Havilah as far as Shur, which is east of Egypt. And he took Agag, the king of the Amalekites, alive and devoted to destruction all the people with the edge of the sword. 
But Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep and the oxen and of the fattened calves and of the lambs and all that was good and would not utterly destroy them. All was, that was despised and worthless, they devoted to destruction. We need God's help in understanding this passage, so pray with me. Our Father, we thank you for giving us your word, for giving us the light and the truth of your word. Lord, we pray that you would help us in understanding it. This is a hard and difficult passage. It's one that we would like to forget is in, this, in your word, and yet all of your word is your word and is profitable and is useful for teaching us righteousness. And so we pray that today we would understand this word and why it's in your, your uh, uh, scripture and why you have given this command or gave this command to Saul and the Israelites. And I pray that you would help our hearts, that we would believe truly the gospel of Jesus Christ, even as this passage reveals it to us. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So I was thinking about this passage. I, I can't get around the fact that this could possibly be the most important sermon that I ever preach. I'm going to lay it out for you. I've preached about 400 sermons since I've been a pastor. This could be the most important one. So I'm glad y'all are here today for it. So, <laughs> um, We're going to look at this passage in three ways. First of all, we're going to see, uh, we're going to ask the question, who are the Amalekites? Secondly, we're going to ask the question, why does God want them destroyed? And then thirdly, we're going to ask the question, who the real enemies are? First of all, who are the Amalekites? Um, one thing that we need to understand is that there has been, up to this point, a long history between Israel and the Amalekites. Uh, God, God's command to destroy and utterly devote the entire nation of the Amalekites to destruction didn't come in a, in a vacuum. There is a, a massive amount of historical context that goes into this. So when God comes to Saul through Samuel and says, I want you to kill Man and woman and child and infant and ox and sheep and all of those on and on and on. When he says that, there's a long history that's in play. We won't go through all of that history, but there's a few things that you need to know. The Amalekites were descendants of Esau. Esau was their grandfather. Uh, if you know anything about the history between Esau and Jacob, uh, they were brothers who were twins who constantly fought against each other. Esau willingly and willingly gave up his birthright and thereby rejected the covenant that God was making with his people. So that's kind of the, the big covenantal backdrop to the relationship between the Amalekites and the Israelites. Esau and Jacob fought. The Amalekites and Israel are going to fight. These two nations are going to fight for their entire history together. Uh, just as Esau uh, rejected the covenant... So did the Amalekites. Uh, and we don't have time to go into it, but there's an indication that the Amalekites, because of their relationship to their, uh, their ancestors, knew about God and his promises. They knew who Yahweh was, and they knew that he had promised to protect and, and provide for Israel because they came from the same place that Jacob came from. They're cousins. So that's the, the big historical backdrop. And the Amalekites decided instead of being under the umbrella of God's covenant, they decided to work against God and his covenant. Esau did that just like the Amalekites did. Now, uh, God's intention for Israel all the way back to Genesis chapter 12 in Abraham, as God called Abraham out of his father's house, he said, 
I'm going to make you a great nation. And if anyone blesses you, I'm going to bless them. And if anyone curses you, I'm going to curse them. And the indication there is that God is going to use his nation, his people, Israel, to be a blessing to all of the other nations. The intention is that they're going to go and spread the good news of God's great love to all of the other nations. Now, it didn't work out that way because Israel was disobedient to God and his commands. But that's that's irregardless. That doesn't matter to this point because that was God's intention. And God said, if a nation blesses you, then I will bless them. Well, here are the Amalekites. And every step of the way throughout Israel's history, instead of being a blessing and coming under the umbrella of God's protection, they fight against him and they fight against God's people. And so God is going to use Israel to be a blessing and a curse, a curse to the Amalekites because they're going to destroy him, but a blessing because he's going to remove the stain of the Amalekites through Israel from the rest of the world. Now, there's some other things that we need to know. Uh, apart from just the fact that the Amalekites opposed God and his plan of redemption throughout history, they were the constant enemies of the people of Israel. They hated God, they hated Israel, and they were active in their hate and their disdain for Israel. Uh, In Exodus chapter 17, verses 6 through 18, the very first nation that attacks Israel as they're coming out of Egypt is the Amalekites. They see weak and wounded. They see the people of Israel who they're not ready to fight anybody. And they say, we're going to take advantage of our cousin Israel. And so Israel asks for permission to pass through the land. The Amalekites say, absolutely, you can pass through the land. We're not going to do anything to you. And all of the stragglers of the two million people that came out of Egypt, of the Israelites, the stragglers, the people that were disabled, the elderly, most of the women and the children were at the back of the line. And the Amalekites slowly, as they were coming out, picked off the weak and the disabled, the women and the children. They attacked the Israelites as they left Egypt. So this is, you get a picture of who the Amalekites were. They didn't fight the men who were at the front. They went to the back and they took out the women and the children, the elderly and the disabled. Um, Numbers chapter 14, there's another picture of the Amalekites joining in with the other Canaanite people to attack and actually defeat Israel. And then all through the book of Judges, the Amalekites come up over and over and over because they constantly want to take advantage of Israel whenever they're weak. Um, All through the scriptures, and especially the Old Testament up to this point, the Amalekites are not merely a people who are doing their own thing and every now and then they just kind of pop on the scene. No, they are actually the portrait of evil. When God wants to point out an evil people in a picture of, the, of depravity, he uses the Amalekites. Deuteronomy chapter 12, verse 31, he says, Look, you're going into the land of the Canaanites, and whenever you're there, they, the Canaanites do things that I detest, namely child sacrifice. They take their children, they give them to the god Moloch for for them to be burned alive. That's what these people do. They are constantly worshiping other gods and committing child sacrifice. And God says, I abhor that. That's what the Amalekites are doing. That's who they are. They are the cosmic enemies of God. It's not merely just a one-off thing. But from their inception, they hated God and they hated his people. They slaughtered women and children. They participated in child sacrifice. And so God says, I command 
their total and utter destruction. Um, and actually what he says in verse 3 is that, now go and strike a Malak and devote them to destruction. That's a word for give them over to me as worship. Israel, acting on God's behalf, is doing what God wants them to do as an act of worship. In Romans chapter 9, the Apostle Paul says that God has created instruments of his wrath for his glory. And we see a picture of that here. Is it harsh? Yes. But that's the picture that we see here. So that's the first thing that we see. We, we see who are the Amalekites. We've answered that question. Secondly, I want to ask this question. Why did God want them destroyed? Well, here's the thing. We don't like the idea of God and his justice and his holiness. We, or at least we pay lip service to that. We, we like a God of love, but, but all this justice and holiness stuff we really don't like. Well, that's not true. Here's a few things that I would just want to throw out to you as an indication that, that all of us actually love God's justice. Do you know what the most popular television shows are on TV? They come on CBS. And CBS has figured out that what everybody wants to watch is crime scene investigators doing their thing at figuring out who the bad guys are so that justice can be served. And so every single night, there's like a thousand of these shows that are the same exact show, and it's all about the bad guy getting justice. Uh, they're in comic book. Comic books are huge, and movies based on comic books are huge right now. You know what comic books are all about? Justice. The bad guy getting what he deserves. Uh, every now and then, you'll run into somebody that, that says, you know, I don't believe in the death penalty. And you say, okay, what about Hitler? Should he have died? Oh, yeah, well, Hitler Hitler should die, but, but no one else. Well, what about the guy that rapes children? Should he die? Well, yeah, that guy should definitely die. So I, I don't agree with the death penalty except in these cases. And then as you expand that out more and more and more, you find out that that person actually does believe in the death penalty because they believe in justice. We love Justice, And we actually love a God of justice because we understand fundamentally that this world is not right. And if God is not a God of justice, then who, who is going to take care of the evil in this world? We also need to understand this, that all of the Amalekites deserve God's wrath. Let me repeat that. All of the Amalekites deserve God's wrath. So under that category of all, who am I including? All of them. Men, women, and children. Now, that might be shocking to us, but before about 200 years ago, it was just an accepted fact, yeah, everyone deserves God's wrath. Before about 200 years ago, everyone just basically accepted that people are evil. Well, what's changed? Well, here's what's changed. We no longer believe the Bible. The Bible says this, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's Romans 3.23. Right before that in Romans 3, it actually says that everyone is a murderer. Everyone has turned aside for God, from God. Everyone hates God. That's the picture that the Bible presents of everyone. All of the Amalekites, men, women, and children. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and deserve His wrath. And then also, and this is something that's a little bit more controversial, but there is such a thing as communal guilt. 
there is such a thing as generational guilt. Guilt that goes from one generation to the next. And that's controversial, especially to us as Americans, because we like to think, no, I'm going to stand for myself and it's my sin that, actually, that, that, that I have to pay for when God in his word actually says, no, you have to pay for Adam's sin, your original father. And not only that, if you go back and read the Ten Commandments, and this would be great homework for you today, go and read the Ten Commandments, and you'll read there that God says, I will not hold generations guiltless for the sin of their parents. There is such a thing as communal guilt. If you benefit from the sin of your parents in any way, God holds you accountable for that sin. The women and the children of the Amalekites benefited from the sin of the men who were the Amalekites. And so God holds them accountable. That's hard, but that's the way that justice works. And then the third thing we need to understand here is that uh, God knows, and you and I know, how things work. If, the, if the, the women and children were left alive, what would happen? They would have more children. And women tend to raise their children according to what they believe. The Amalekite women believed that Israel should die. And when they raised their children, they would raise warriors to fight against the Israelites. And so God says, utterly destroy them, utterly kill them. Take them off the face of the earth. They sacrifice children. They, um, they, take, they take advantage of the weak and the disabled. They are a stain on this world. And because Israel, you are my people, I want you to take them out. All right. Um, and just so that you know that this isn't just, again, in a vacuum, that God isn't saying that this is the way that it works. If you go back and read the book of Esther, um, Haman, the, the great enemy of Esther, is an Amalekite. And what does Haman want to do? He wants to destroy all of the Israelites. This is something that happens over and over and over, and therefore God says, destroy them. So there you are. That's why God wants them destroyed. It's hard. We may not like it, but that's the truth, and we have to deal with the truth. So lastly, I want to ask this question. Who are the real enemies of God? Well, obviously, we've seen that the Amalekites are the enemies of God. Why are they God's enemies? Well, we've seen it. They reject God. They reject His covenant. Further, they do things that, that are detestable in child sacrifice and taking advantage of the weak and oppressing the weak and all of these sorts of things. And yet, up to this point, God has been very patient with them. Their history coming out of Egypt at this point, it's been between four and six hundred years of them doing these evil and detestable things. If your children are doing something bad, you handle it right away. And yet God has been patient with the Amalekites for between four to six hundred years. He's given them time to repent and they have not. And Israel doing this thing is going to be a blessing to all of the other Canaanites because the Amalekites need to be taken off the, the face of the earth. If they actually don't do this, then the Israelites will be a curse by not removing the Amalekites, by not carrying out God's justice. Because God promised that that's what the Israelites were going to do. So the Amalekites obviously are the enemies of God. But notice something here. We've been studying the book of 1 Samuel since the beginning of, of this year. And the first thing we started off with was that the people of God 
rejected God, rejected his covenant by wanting another king. So it's not just the Amalekites that are the enemies of God. It's the Israelites also that are saying to God, we do not want you as our God. We do not want you as our leader. We are rejecting you and your covenant. That's the whole point of 1 Samuel chapters 1 through 15. Israel is terrible, or is the enemy of Yahweh. As much as God loves them and provides for them and takes care of them, Israel rejects God. So, but wait a second. Why is Israel not rejected? Why does God provide for them and protect them and take care of them? Well, the answer to that is because God is a God of justice, but also he's a God of grace. God has promised to Israel, and this is the promise that was there at Genesis 3, chapter, or verse 15, that he was going to take care of his people even when they reject him. God will remain their God, and his people will remain his people. And God is going to love them in spite of them. He will pursue them to the very ends of the earth and will never completely, utterly throw them off or reject them. So even when the people of Israel slap God in the face, he does not return their slap with unkindness. He takes care of them. He loves them. He provides for them. Because, as I told the children, they are under his umbrella. And God did that for them by his grace and his mercy. Israel didn't deserve it. They are his enemies, and God says, I'm going to love my enemy. Finally, we are the enemies of God. You and I, on a daily basis, reject God and reject his covenant. You and I are just like the Amalekites and just like the Israelites. We don't like to admit that. We don't like to think about that because we like to think of ourselves as the good guys. But every sin is an act of cosmic treason. Every single sin says, I know better than you, God. And we attempt to put ourselves in the place of God. So what do we deserve? We deserve the same fate as the Amalekites. We should be utterly wiped off the face of the earth. We should take God's wrath on ourselves because of our sin. So what's our hope? Our hope is the same hope as Israel. It's not to be good enough. It's not to try to make God get on our team or on our side. It's not trying to be, to be the very best that we can be. The only hope that you and I have is to be covered by God, to be under his umbrella by his grace through faith in Jesus Christ. Let me conclude by just saying this. You need to hear the good news. The good news is that not that you earn God's favor. The good news is not that you're born into the family of the Israelites. Here's the good news. That Jesus Christ is faithful Israel. He lived 33 years or so. And all through that time, he lived perfectly. He did what you cannot do. He kept the law. He fulfilled it. He lived perfectly. He is the faithful Israel. But more than that, on the cross, we don't see merely a man hanging for his crime. We see Jesus Christ becoming Amalek for us. On the cross, Jesus Christ takes the wrath of God that we deserve for our sin.
So Jesus, even though he doesn't deserve it, even though he kept the law perfectly, he goes to the cross to take God's wrath because God looks at him and says, you're not my faithful Israel. You are an Amalek and I want you utterly destroyed. Because if he did not go to the cross, then you would have to. You would have to take the wrath of God for eternity. The good news is that Jesus Christ substituted himself in your place. He's faithful Israel for you. He's unfaithful Amalek taking your sin on himself. That's the good news. Do you believe it? And finally, let me just connect it to the Lord's Supper for us. It's an odd thing. We've been talking about the wrath of God, the destruction of God for an entire people group. And yet, we're supposed to now come and celebrate a supper and have joy because of that? Absolutely. This is an odd contrast, isn't it? Who do you invite to dinner? Who do you invite to eat with you? You never invite your enemies to eat with you. You only invite people that you want to be around. You only invite people that that you like to be around to eat with you. And God has invited us to eat a meal around his table. Not when we're his friends, but because... When we were enemies and dead in our trespasses and sin, he gave us himself and his son so that we can be his friends. He only invites enemies to this meal. You haven't come today as a good person. All of us are wretched sinners. All of us deserve the wrath of God. And the good news is that Jesus Christ took that so that we can be invited to this meal. Again, this is a hard passage but I hope you see the goodness of God to us, even in the midst of this hard passage through his son. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you for giving us this day. We thank you for giving us this word. I pray that you would help us to believe it, to see your goodness and your grace and your mercy through it. We pray that as we take this supper, that we would have real joy, joy because of your son, and joy that lasts into eternity. We pray this in Christ's name.